0: For this episode, episode 20 of What's the Tease, I'd like to welcome my guest, the Asian sexation Calamity Chang. Calamity, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to talk. Um, You're based in New York City correct and like many of our south african artists you have another occupation outside of the burlesque world yes i do um, which could definitely have come in handy
1: um during this uh, COVID 19 pandemic time i reckon i feel very grateful and lucky that i'm still working we've all been working from home remotely the um i work in advertising i'm an art director so since March, we all kind of like went home for the weekend thinking we'll come back to work on Monday but left all of our stuff at work and now we, can't, we haven't been able to go back to get anything. So I was lucky that I took my computer home because <laughs> I've already been working from home a lot. So then it's just, yeah, we, I have not been up there at 1675 Broadway since March. Wow, that is so crazy. Luckily, my apartment. We have enough room that I have my own room. That's my office slash burlesque room. Mm-hmm. So I've been able to continue to work from home without any distractions. Whereas a lot of my colleagues have little kids, and now they have to be home homeschool or like do pre K kind of work with a three four year old. On top of that, deal with all the like account management and whatever stuff that she yeah, has to yeah. do. Life it's, it's, it's horrible. I don't know how they do it because you you have. Oh, I, dealing with a child running around and then answer all these like Zoom conference calls. Yeah, it's just yeah. it's insane. I feel so, so bad for them.
0: Yeah, like that uh, separation of the different parts of yourself, I think, has been really challenging for people. And I mean, hey, those who have risen to that salute for sure. <laughs> so how is it then that you came to discover burlesque as it was not your primary career objective?
1: Right, so when I meet people from a different city or different country who say they want to move to New York City to be a burlesque performer, I always tell them, no. (laughs) Because first of all, you can't make a living just doing burlesque in New York City. The cost of living here is so high. And then you're, yes, there are lots of gigs, but they're not often high pay. So you're shuffling around, hustling for like a $100 gig, here or $75 gig there. And then you take the subway home and you're, it's just, it's, I don't think anyone is a full-time performer. Everybody has like a supplement income, whether they bartend or art model, or they make costumes for other people, or they have, you know, some other kind of job. I know that a lot of Performers have left the city since COVID because we are not open yet. New York City is still on yeah. lockdown. So nothing that is a bar or a restaurant and most of our shows are in a bar or a yeah. restaurant setting. We don't have big stages and you know venues that are specific to performing are not allowed to be open still. Yeah. Anyway, because I think we're well, but anyway, I digressed. Um, so how did I get into it? <laughs> yeah. So I did not, I did not come to New York City with this dream of oh, I want to be a burlesque artist. I didn't even yeah. know what the fuck that was, but I was just walking around. I was like in my late twenties, walking around the East Village, and I saw a sign that said, "Burlesque show, five dollars." So I went in, I watched it, and I was like completely blown away at the comedy and the the cheekiness of women, you know. Performing with their bodies, with the nudity and the Mm -hmm. narrative they were doing with each of their acts, and I was kind of like, that was it. And then after that, I it took me a while though to take classes because it's just it's hard to like start. I didn't even know where to start. Like, where do you even buy a corset? Yeah, yeah. So then I took Joe Boobs. I went to Joe Boobs School of Burlesque. Took an Essential series that got me, you know, my feet wet. Mm -hmm. and then i did a debut then a friend of mine offered me his restaurant to do a weekly sunday show that i called dim sum burlesque it was Mm -hmm. all like very 1920s old shanghai style and some weimar influence and then that was it that kind of just like it just rolled and i was like well i'm not gonna throw away this opportunity that fell in my lap that would be stupid yeah so that's how it happened.
0: So, I mean, what was the intrigue for you upon discovering the art form that made you want to participate, like be
1: on stage as opposed to just enjoying it from the audience? Uh-huh. That's a good question. I Well, I guess I've always liked performing, but I just didn't discover burlesque. So in college, I was in an all-girl improv group. So we did skits, like, you know, seasonally on school campus, and I love improv, which is probably why I like speaking in public. Mm -hmm. I host a lot of my own shows, so that's not intimidating for me. And then I was like super nerdy and was in speech and debate club in high school. So I was, (laughs) you know, like I've always been drawn to performing of some kind, but because my parents are immigrant Chinese family, uh, performing in theater is just not something that is on the menu. You So I guess I kind of ended up doing speech and debate because it was performing, but it was academic and smart, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that was always there inside me. And I've always been interested in vintage culture. And so when I saw burlesque, I was just like, this is the perfect you know, combination of two things I really like. Yeah. And I think I just like it. I think everyone in burlesque were like rebellious women. And I think as a person of color, and being an immigrant in America, there's a lot of things that I wanted to fight against. For instance, the expectations of what I should be doing, which, of course, you know, your parents mean well. But at the same time, it's kind of like, whose dream am I living? Is it theirs or is it mine? Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of the irony about Immigration narrative is that your parents bring you here because they want better things for you, but their idea of better is not necessarily better for you. Yeah. But that that mentality is totally because I've assimilated into the Western idea of self pursuit of happiness. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Regardless of like your community, which could be your immediate family and what their desires are.
0: You being an immigrant, you were born in Taiwan, and your family immigrated to the states when you were quite a young age. When you chose the name Calamity Chang, was it a conscious decision to find a reference that is recognizable in Western culture like that of Calamity
1: Jane? Hell yes, exactly. (laughs) I was very intentional with my tagline because I grew up in Texas where I grew up in a time where being Asian is not cool I don't know if being Asian is cool still I mean honestly I always thought all... being Asian
0: was supposed to be cool
1: Come on. I love that I love that I think it's just you know the anti-Asian crimes lately because of COVID rests heavy on my mind so mm-hmm. that's why I'm like I don't know if it's cool or not but I think for me burlesque really helped me look at my background and you know, use that as a way to make myself stand out. So I guess it was kind of a homecoming for me. So from the get, I really wanted to have an Asian name in my tagline because I wanted people to know that I'm an Asian performer and Mm -hmm. I'm raising that flag. And then because I grew up in Texas, I thought the Calamity Jane outlaw reference is really cool. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it's a blend of both
0: your worlds. Yes, exactly. That's pretty cool. You mentioned earlier that after you took those classes with Joe Boobs at the New York School of Bolesk, producing a show kind of happened upon you. Yes. And I mean, there was no fear, obviously, then. I'm wondering, like, is that like because of your advertising background?
1: Probably, because I really don't know why it's so hard to produce. I feel like if you can organize and time manage but I guess those are kind of hard skills not everybody have them or have enough practice to be good at them yeah I mean I think what does help is that because I work in graphic design and digital design I just design everything I don't have to rely on anyone to help me make a poster and then I'm you know fluent with digital platforms like promoting and I know how to write a press release, you know, so Mm -hmm. I guess I don't have to rely on other people to do it for me. So that's why it kind of was very easy for me. Yeah, like a natural transition. Yeah, it was just like, okay, I've seen people do this at work, and I just, like, copy the same thing, change a few words. But at the same time, you know, I'm not producing at the level of, say, Lollapalooza. Yeah. That might yeah. be, like, crazy. <laughs> you know, the most after Wrangle is maybe, like, 15 to 20 people in a cast. That is still a lot of people. If you're organized, you tell people, yeah. you need to send yeah. this to me at a certain time, mm-hmm. or else, like, you can't be in the show, or you can't be part of the tips with... I've never had anyone not follow directions. And I mean, you've been rightly
0: credited with being one of the busiest performers and producers just because of the amount of regular weekly shows you had in New York City prior to COVID-19, of course. Like, how do you manage your burlesque schedule with your non-burlesque job?
1: A lot of time management. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I... So I guess I have to sacrifice things like going out with friends. Because on nights that I'm not gigging and I come home from work, I just want to chill. I need to either fix costumes. There's just like always a list of stuff I need to get to. Mm -hmm. Um, So on nights that I don't have a gig, I just have to catch up on those things. Sometimes it's just sleeping. So I'm I'm a big sleeper. I love sleeping. I need like eight hours. Sometimes I'll just lay in bed until I feel like I have bed sores and then I'll get up. (laughs) But I, so I have to sacrifice, you know, there's sacrifices I make. I don't, I don't go out that much. I don't party a whole bunch. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, that's, but that's fine because I'm doing what I love. Yeah. And then, you know, before COVID, some of the weekly shows ended. So that really lightened up a lot of my schedule. So that was good. That was a really good thing. I've I've been, I'm learning how much I can take on and, you know, what I want to take on and not take on anymore. Fair enough. And uh, I am sometimes feel
0: like quite a bad friend, actually, because the same, I, I work in hosp- hospitality and film as well mm. as, like, producing shows. So, like, between those two jobs and then when I'm producing a show, like, that's my going out. And so, like, when, right. when friends want to see and meet up, I'm like, so I'm having this show. Um, if you guys are keen <laughs> to come. I'll, yeah, I'll, if I'll, you guys want to see me,
1: come to my show. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Yeah, and what you do, hospitality is exhausting. You're on your feet all the time. Talking to people. Talking to people. And then you do a show, and you have to talk to more people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, luckily for me, I am in front of a computer all day long, which, you know, is not great either because I have a very inactive day job. Mm-hmm. But then at least I'm kind of alone. People, you know, I have something I have to work on. If you're under deadline crunch, just like leave me the fuck alone. No one talk to me. So when I do have to do a show, I kind of like love the fact that I have this other outlet to be to tap into my social side yeah
0: and what I love about it actually is I mean I don't know if you feel the same but like even with working in hospitality and with doing film work that's 14 16 hour days and then you go and you do your show afterwards and everybody's always like like where do you get the energy from to do that? Yes. It's like when you're doing something that you love. You
1: love, exactly. It just feeds you in that way. Yeah, it really does. It's the adrenaline too. Like mm. I always come home from work and then I make myself take a nap because, you know, again, the power naps is just I swear by them. Yeah. And sometimes if I'm too hyped up, I'll listen to sleep meditation tapes or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And then I find the little nap really, really, really helps. And by the time I sit down in front of my vanity to do my makeup, I'm like completely pumped.
0: Yeah, are you into you know, some so ASMR? I am not, but
1: I'm learning more about it.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a great person that we uh, like. She's amazing. Her name is Ting Ting. It's very relaxing, and that that'll that'll help you rest if ever you you know. Is it is it challenged. a podcast? Well, it's on YouTube. It's visual, but like. Your focus is not necessarily on watching her, but she is so gentle, even visually, to watch. Like oh, her cool. movements aren't very distracting, you know, so you find your eyes getting tired and,
1: oh, you know, cool. yeah, and then
0: you just slip into it quite easily. Oh, I love that. Cool, so moving on. Over the years, you've successfully performed a variety of styles of burlesque, from classic to neo, and your signature acts have been inspired by food. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So what motivates you to create these food list numbers?
1: Well, for me, I wanted to do Asian food icons. So I'm thinking about icons, right? That's mm-hmm. my thought process. Mm-hmm. It's like, how can one be iconic? <laughs> it's seriously, it's like a branding marketing one oh one class. And yeah. I was like, How can how can one be iconic? And then, then I started thinking, Well, what are iconic shapes and things? And of course I love like ramen noodles i love asian food i love hot sauce so of course the first one i did was sriracha and i'm like sriracha was going through this huge like explosion of popularity in the in i would arguably say in the world and so it's like that's something that's recognizable by everyone and so that just kind of led me down the path of like well what are some other asian food icons that's universal and so for me part of it is that i feel very proud of my heritage and that these icons in these food things unite people rather than divide them because they're instantly recognizable everybody Mm -hmm. loves these kind of foods. So that to me is kind of like the impetus behind it but I also just think it's really funny to be food and then strip out of food and you're like a naked lady. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I just really like oversized things, especially oversized food props. That <laughs> just like, I don't know, it's just really funny, and I just, I, you know, as you know, it's a burlesque world. If you don't make yourself laugh, or if you don't enjoy the acts you're doing, why are you doing it? Yeah, it's kind of like borderline fetish. <laughs> yeah, yes, there is an element of food fetish, and it's funny that you brought that up because. Forza, who is a performer in Toronto, she's really amazing. And she's also an academic writing a PhD thesis on reclaiming exoticism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so she used my food acts as some of her discussion points. And she had a really interesting point that I thought was so smart. She said that what I'm doing is literally portraying the consumable exotic other. Mm -hmm. But then... I can send you what she said. I can't remember. It was just very smart. And I was like, oh my God, that's exactly it. Yeah, no, I'd love to
0: read it. Um, I heard a little bit about it when I listened to your uh, podcast with Angie Pontani. Yes, yes. yeah, So that's, that's that's it. You heard it then already. <laughs> it's also just like, yes, those are part of the things that you are portraying when creating the act. But sometimes you don't necessarily always have the words to right. You know, sum it all up.
1: Exactly. Because you're doing what you do best, which is doing the act. Right. And that's why we need art critics, because that's their job. Someone who's outside and are able to see what you're doing. And, you know, that's that's what the curator function is. Mm -hmm. So are you a foodie? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I think most Asian people are because food is such a big part of community, family, celebration, everything. Everything revolves around food. What's like your favorite thing to eat post show? Oh, my God. If I was being like, Oh, fuck this shit. I'm, you know, I'm going to eat whatever I want, even though I'll feel bad the next day. I would love to eat ramen noodles every day after. show. I can eat ramen noodles for breakfast, lunch, dinner, everything. Oh, wow. You must know a really good spot. Well, sometimes I've been learning to make it myself at home and it's not too bad. Like it's like a home version. So it's, you know, it's not like a thick pork broth or anything, but mm-hmm. it's still good. I mean, anything soupy. Sometimes I'll eat an instant noodle too. But yeah. I, the other thing I love to do after shows is the wine down, which is wine and French fries. <laughs> oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so we had um, one of my older shows that was on Friday nights. That was the best part actually because the show, it's like it's great that it's a steady pay for everyone, myself and the community. It went on for five years, but the crowd that goes through this bar slash restaurant is just kind of not the best audience mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they're a little dude bro they're a bit like you know it becomes like a big dj nightclub so oh, they're yeah. not paying attention the tips are always mm-hmm. real iffy but the best part is we always go across the street and we all have wine and fries those who can stay out and don't have another gig so amazing that, I, I miss that part
0: You produced the New York Asian Burlesque Festival along with Jin Gepe from Thirsty Girl Productions, which uh, made its debut in 2013. Yes. What was and is your intention with this offering to the burlesque scene?
1: I think for me, I was like, well, I didn't see that many Asian performers. And there was, you know, obviously this type of um, Asian specific or any kind of Ethnic specific show hasn't really happened on a big scale When I started doing the show the only troupe that I knew of was brown girl burlesque Mm -hmm. So then I was like well, I don't see Asians Let's just see what because also I feel like as Asian performers we have to combat a lot of stereotypes Sometimes people think oh you're an Asian performer. You must have a geisha act. No, I don't you know? yeah, yeah. So I feel like, OK, let's do a festival where Asian performers do what they want to do. It doesn't have to be an Asian act, right? Like the fact that your skin is Asian is Asian enough. So I always tell people who are invited to the show, to the festival to just do whatever they love doing the most. Mm-hmm. That's where like because I really believe in like if you don't see it, make it. Yeah. So I don't like, I'm not like a complainer. I don't like to be like, well, there's not enough agents in this show and that show. And I'm like, well, I'm going to fucking make one. Yeah.
0: Once again, that natural producer organizer instinct kicking in.
1: (laughs) Well, it's also (laughs) been great working with Jen Capay because she. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's a very great organic way working together. Like we just, we divide up the duties pretty organically. I don't think we ever ever had a conversation about it. Just kind of fell in very naturally. Mm -hmm. And what
0: has been the response from
1: the Asian community towards the festival? Well, it's funny because the first couple of years, Jen and I would hide behind the door and like peek out because we were both like, well, who's coming to the show? (laughs) Yeah. I was curious too. I don't think the Asian community is very welcoming of nudity especially the older tradition the older generation Mm -hmm. so i definitely did not expect like oh the people from the chinatown museum to come or anything i invite them i invite them but i think there's still you know obstacles to overcome there but that's fine Mm -hmm. you know whatever um the first couple of years i felt like it was just like you know lots of non-asians and then then it just progressively became more and more like mixed and then there were lots of female asian females that women that i follow who follow me were artists and they are illustrators they're also just you know doing things on their own terms and then the last one we did last year i did see some older asian people who came because their 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 daughter brought them yeah that was really amazing i felt like it reached the apex of uh mixed diverse group of all generation too not just like you know background but age
0: yeah have you ever seen that movie saving face and just for me as a as a queer woman like i loved the complexities of like dealing with queerness within or like in a cultural context but also as Chinese immigrants and like if you, you know, the, the children were born in America so they're Asian Americans but like there was so much like unsaid and between the lines that one just like resonated with when it came to like coming from a conservative community and what it's like to, I don't know, I suppose be who you are or have, have interests that are seen
1: as Western, do you know what I mean? Right. You know I mean? Yes. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. I totally get it. I just googled that show, that movie, and I'm gonna watch it. Hopefully, it's on Netflix or something. Yeah. um yeah. I do understand the concept of saving face. It's a very Chinese concept. Um, you're right, and that is, I think, truth about immigration. Mm-hmm. You know, like our parents want something for us, but then I may want something different. Yeah. And How do you reconcile with? you know some parts of your life may not be accepted ever
0: yeah it's one it's one of my favorites just because like the story just resonated for me on so many levels and I loved all the unspokenness of things and that it's a different culture yet you understand it so you know without yeah words. this is
1: awesome awesome cool
0: <laughs> have you ever performed burlesque obviously outside of the states and in an Asian country oh my god no <laughs> <laughs> is it something that you'd like to do
1: well, I work with this drag king, Wayne Newton, who oh, yeah. is oh, yeah. fantastic. He is also from Taiwan, like me, and he's been advocating and really being out there pushing drag king visibility, especially Asian drag king visibility. And he's doing a fantastic job. He has been really advocating trying to bring like at least a drag king scene to Taipei, which is mm-hmm. where we're both born in which I think would be the first step. And I definitely think Taiwan would be an easier way in than say China, because mm. Taiwan is just so liberal and it's, you know, if they recognize gay marriage or same sex marriage. I think it's the first Asian country to do it. But yeah, I mean, I would love to, but at the same time, there are so many other places I could perform at.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's not like on the top of the list.
1: Not really. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, I think Japan has really a really cool scene. Yeah. I follow a few of the Japanese performers on Instagram. And mm-hmm. it looks like they actually have a good scene. But yeah, I mean, right now, I'm just like, if I get to perform anywhere in the next six months, I would be happy. Doesn't I even have to be out of this country? <laughs> yeah. You know, perform in real life, not like um, Zoom or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) As a teacher at the New
0: York School of Burlesque, you share your skills in, well, two courses at the moment, the Fan
1: Dance and Producing Burlesque with Calamity Chang. Yes. So I haven't taught in a long time. Yeah. Because last two years I've been touring so much that when I tour, I teach a headdress making class Mm -hmm. and I teach Fan Dance class. And I also teach a branding 101 class. Those are the newest classes I teach. I haven't taught fan dance or producing class in the through the school of burlesque in a long time. Mm-hmm.
0: What do you find are some of the challenges that you've encountered when producing the show?
1: All right, so the hardest thing for me, I think, the hardest part is getting butts in seats. And that's like, I think every producer will say that. Mm-hmm. And you just never know how many people will come and not come. I also find negotiating with the venue can be challenging. Because I like to do shows where they just give me a lump sum of what I need to pay everyone. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't want a bar split. I don't want a bar share. Because I'm like, I don't know. Are you going to show me your receipts? Yeah. I just have to like trust that you're doing it. And then there's some venues who are like ridiculous, they think, oh, burlesque is gonna pack the house, let's have a burlesque show. And then they expect you to have at least $2,000, $3,000 of liquor sales. Yeah. I'm like, are you fucking crazy? That's like, they're just like, some of these bars in New York City, they they see that everyone has a burlesque show, so they wanna have one too. Yeah, yeah. But they don't understand that like, we're not gonna sell $3,000 of alcohol. Yeah, yeah. Or that, like, I will bring in... I mean, I've produced at a strip club because for a hot second in New York, two of the competing strip clubs here, but they started doing a burlesque night. And so, the, of course, the other one's like, well, they're doing burlesque night. We got to do a burlesque night. So they had it on, like, a Monday. So I did one with someone else and one with another person. And it was horrible. Mm-hmm. They were like... The owner came was like, well, I certainly hope we get a lot of people in here. And I'm like, you're not. Because burlesque... It, I think it's very friendly towards women mm-hmm. or like you know but I never say to my girlfriends hey let's go catch up at the strip club why not <laughs> you know what I'm saying <laughs> well why don't a, you say because, that to your girlfriend <laughs> because a the cover charge is expensive yeah like a beer is 12 dollars oh wow you know what I'm saying it's like and the vibe is different like I also yeah. don't I want to like catch up with my friends I don't Sure, I'll go to a strip club if I'm celebrating something. You know, everybody goes to pumps in Brooklyn. But, like, if I'm just catching up with someone, I don't want to go to a strip club. So anyway, so that was just, like... That was a debacle, and then they like the the house girls didn't like us being there. They thought we were gonna steal tips from them or take tips away, uh-huh. and then so they kept us all in two steps. There was none of this like oh camaraderie. Let's like oh we're all women. No, it was not like that at all. Mm-hmm. You would think it would be, but no. That I think that only happens on the movie Hustler with J Lo. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was not a pleasant experience, and nobody there cared about what we we're doing. Because we're there with, like, a big old dowdy gown. Mm-hmm. And then, ooh, we took off a glove. Now you see a wrist. Big fucking deal. Like, these girls <laughs> yeah. come out. They're, like, fuck naked already, you know? It's, like, it felt so, like, disjointed. <laughs> and so I, I think that show, those shows lasted, like, I don't know, two months. hmm
0: So what are three points of advice for any prospective producers out there?
1: I mean, I guess my suggestion or advice would be know your audience, like know who is going to come to your show, like know your fan base, also know that venue's fan base, like what kind of people come to that venue. Mm -hmm. And then second, I always tell everyone to treat producing and your relationship with the venue like it's a job. Like, Mm -hmm. don't, you know, sometimes I feel like in nightlife, there's no HR, there's no (laughs) like, you know, proper decorum or behavior, things that you don't talk about and things you do talk about. I always treat it the way I treat my relationship with my corporate job. Like, I'm not going to talk about politics with people that book me. I'm not going to like get so fucking wasted that I Mm -hmm. sleep with somebody that I work with. It's just all those things because I think that's how you earn respect. And that, if you have respect, you have more negotiation power when it comes to money. Indeed. So
0: you mentioned that uh, during this pandemic, you have kind of taken stock of your career as a burlesque artist and where you'd like to take that. Would you like to give us any insight into what we can expect from Calamity Chang?
1: Well, I don't want to jinx myself yet, but we're in the middle of finding a home to buy, but I am hoping to expand and then go outside the city, Uh, not that far, under two hours. I just really kind of want a suburban life right now. I'm not, there's nothing happening in New York. My work is probably going to let us work from I'm definitely we're gonna be working from home for the rest of the year and I think Mm -hmm. next year we might they'll probably do volunteer basis like who wants to come in who doesn't want to come in Mm -hmm. so I also just I want to have some land I want to wake up to see trees and have a hot tub and Mm -hmm. you know have a big-ass house where friends can come and chill for the weekend so I'm hoping to expand outside i am burnt out i'll tell you the truth i'm burnt out from living in new york i'm burnt out from producing mm-hmm. in new york city and it sounds so spoiled and terrible to say but it doesn't excite me anymore it mm-hmm. used to when i first started the idea of producing well I was like, yeah i'm gonna like fucking get all these shows and i had a bunch of shows like three weeklies and two monthlies and blah yeah. all the it was crazy but now it doesn't excite me anymore so i feel like when Things like that, when I feel stale, I need to change my my scenery. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I know as a, anybody who works in the gig economy, to be able to have ownership and especially over property, it's like a huge life achievement. Also,
1: you know, it's, it's time. I'm much older than everybody else. So, yeah. And actually, that is something, if I had a time machine a hot tub time machine <laughs> and I went back I went back in time to my 25 year old I would be like bitch apply for a mortgage and buy something especially if you have family that can help you and you have a good relationship with your family in which you can accept that kind of donation and gift do it mm-hmm. like even if you bought something small like a small studio in New York if I done that I'm at 25 that shit would be worth so much money I would have sold it twice and I like, had two different houses already Yes, but when you're 25, you're not yeah. thinking about it. You're just like, all my paychecks are going to drinks and alcohol and clothes. Yeah. I wish somebody fucking knocks on sensing me when I was 25. That's what I would do. I wouldn't go back to kill Hitler because I feel like people learned the lesson the world <laughs> did. So I would just go back and tell myself, bought myself upside the handy life, fucking buy a house, buy an apartment in New York City. And don't sleep with the first boyfriend that you've slept with. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, hold out. out. Um, Would you like to leave us with uh, any closing words? Stay strong. Stay true to your art. Do what makes you laugh and makes you feel like, I can't wait to do that act. That's another thing that I've had time to evaluate during this downtime is I have so many acts, but there's really maybe six that I love doing. That I feel like it's just, you don't have to rehearse it because you're just, it's like, it's like DNA. Like riding a bicycle. Yeah. So those are the acts that I'm going to focus on. And that's what we should all focus on. Like, don't do an act because you feel, I mean, that happens in New York a lot. Everyone feels like they have to have a classic act to get, get you know, the, mm-hmm. ninth, the big paying gigs. And I think that's fine. But... It's also an investment, like costumes cost thousands of dollars. Yeah. So I'm just, you know, that's, that's my path now. I'm not, I'm going to sell some of the other crap that I have. It's not crap, but I just, you know, I guess my <laughs> parting words of wisdom <laughs> would be develop acts that you love, truly love.
0: So with those excellent pearls, I'd like to thank you so much for joining me on episode 20 of What's a Tease? It's the last episode of the season. There's going to be a two-week hiatus and then I'm going to be back with season two. So thank you, Calamity Chang, for joining me on this episode of What's it? Thank you so much.